Good morning, family. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jason Carver. I'm one of the elders here and have the privilege of serving on the teaching team. It is so awesome to be with you this morning. I'd just like to ask you to join me in a quick word of prayer as we dive into God's word. We're continuing in the New Testament book of Hebrews, which I hope has been a joy and a challenge and encouragement to each of you thus far. So, Heavenly Father, we come uh, before you. Uh, as the one who is the grantor of our inheritance. And Father, I can't help but think of Peg uh, as soon her faith will become sight that that inheritance that she has longed for is soon one that she will experience. But God, we know that as she experiences that in your presence, we're left with a whole. And I think especially of Mary, a sister, that has loved Peggy deeply, God, we pray for your encouragement and strength for Mary these days, God, and we encourage, we want to encourage her, God, as she continues to look forward to that day as well. And Lord, we thank you that that comes not because of anything we bring to the table, but it's because of what Christ did for us. And so we're thankful, Lord, that it is secure because of him. So God, Bless your word today. May it enter our hearts and our minds through your spirit, God. Draw us closer to you. Give us grace and understanding and clarity. Uh, Father, through the foolishness of preaching, God, make your name renowned and glorified, we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So we've been in this New Testament series uh, entitled Better Than, where we've been looking at the book of Hebrews. And this morning, we're going to look at a portion of chapter 9 and a portion of chapter 10. And as we do that, I was thinking, about 23 years ago, almost 23 years ago, there was a movie that came out in August of 1999 that wound up being the second highest grossing movie of that year. And it starred Bruce Willis as a child psychologist. Some of you already know what it is. Don knows right over here, right, Don? Uh, and so the movie was directed by a local director who lives in the Philadelphia area. You might have heard his name, M. Night Shyamalan. And this was his third movie. He had made two before that were a reasonable success, but this really broke him out to become a household name. And what he's known for is making movies where there's a significant plot twist that most of the time, at least the first time you watch it through, you don't see. And that's exactly what happened here. So you might not have seen the movie, uh, and it was a while ago, but you probably, at least if you're old enough, remember the most prominent line from the movie, which was when his nine-year-old patient says to him, I see dead people, right? It's the sixth sense. And so my cousin and a friend of hers went to see the movie, and they were caught off guard by the ending. And so they said to me, hey, just come out. You're never going to believe this. You're, you will never guess in a million years what happens in this movie. So I said, okay. So I went to the movie, and it's in the first few minutes, and Bruce Willis's character gets shot. I'm sorry if I am uh, giving away a story that you haven't seen, but he gets shot. And a few moments later, things seem back to normal, the timeline jumps a few months, and he's back engaging as a child psychologist. And at that moment, I made a strategic error on my part. 
I leaned over to my cousin and to her friend and I said to them, I said, are you going to tell me that the twist here is that Bruce Willis is actually dead? And they looked at me and they couldn't believe it. And I said, that's what it is, isn't it? And so the rest of the night, I was either given the cold shoulder or I was chastised for daring to know what the plot of the movie was. But here's the thing. If you watch it through and then you go back and rewatch it, you'll notice that the director is giving you clues all along the way as to what's really going on. And as we continue in the book of Hebrews this morning, we'll see that the author of the book of Hebrews, who is not disclosed to us, basically makes the same point to his original audience, that the Old Testament, and particularly the Old Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant, was giving clues all along the way that it was not the end product, that God was up to something that he would be doing in the future, and now that time has come. So I want to encourage you to turn to chapter 9, verse 15. That's where we're going to start in just a moment. As we do that, let's do just a brief moment of recap here. So the way that Hebrews is laid out is that there are several contrasting pictures the author gives, and it's always Jesus and someone or something. And in the midst of that, he issues a few warnings. And those warnings are really meant to say, look, if you don't see and acknowledge that Jesus is better than these things, than these people, you do so to your own peril. So in chapters 1 and 2, he talks about the prophets and the angels. And he says, listen, Jesus is better than them because they spoke for God and they implemented the old covenant but in these last days, he's speaking directly and only through his son, who implements the new covenant himself. He goes on as if that wasn't enough, and he takes on Moses, who was a central figure in Israel's history. And he says, yes, Moses was faithful in God's house, but Jesus is the builder of that house. Then he goes to Joshua, another significant Old Testament character, and he says, look, Joshua brought Israel into the land God had promised, and he gave them a temporary rest. But it was just that temporary. Only Jesus Christ is able to give an eternal rest. Then he talks about the high priests that came before, and he says, the high priests were faithful, but they were sinful, and their terms eventually came to an end. But not so with Jesus. He's perfect, and he reigns forever. And then last week, Dave Allum shared with us from the beginning of chapter 9 about the tabernacle. God had a physical presence in the tabernacle, but the people didn't have access to it. Jesus gives us access to the Father. So that's where it brings us today, and we're going to start with verse 15. Now, we're not, because of the size of this passage, going to be able to do verse by verse with everything. But let's look at a few highlights, and as we do so, I want to note th uh, five things. So last week, Dave gave you four Ps. I don't want to be outdone, so I'm going to give you five. For the price of four, I'm not going to charge you any extra, all right? So here are the five. The promise, the place, perfect, power, and position. Promise, place, perfect, power, and position. So, so far, the author has pointed out that Jesus is better than all these other things we just discussed, all these other significant cultural 
people, people of the faith that came before Moses and Joshua and others. Today, however, he's going to contrast the sacrifices. And this is different, and here's why it's different. Moses and Joshua would have been held in high esteem. They would have been revered by Jewish people. But the Jewish people never met them. The people that he's writing to came thousands of years later. So they wouldn't have known Joshua and Moses personally. And they talked about the tabernacle, and they knew what the tabernacle was. They knew the history, and they knew what the Old Testament said about it. But they were never there. Today, though, he's going to talk about the sacrifices, and that's something that would be part of their regular experience. It would be part of their identity and their common experience as, a, as God's people. The Old Covenant prescribed feasts and offerings that included sacrifices, and these were done regularly. And many of them incorporated the blood of animals. And the author of Hebrews is going to show us, just as he did with his earliest audience, that Jesus' sacrifice is greater. And not only is it greater, but the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, points ahead to the fact that a greater covenant is coming. So to understand this passage, here's what we need to do. We need to deal with an uncomfortable topic. We need to deal with the subject of blood. Now, I know for some of you, when you see blood, you become very squeamish. And I know that you don't like the idea of needles and you don't like the idea of seeing it come out of your veins. And yet, as a faith, the blood is of extreme importance to us. In fact, if you're not a Christian, you probably wonder, why is there always this talk about the blood? Why are there songs about it? Isn't this a bit morbid and unnecessary to talk about? Well, here's why the blood is so central. And I'm going to give you a positive and a negative. On the positive side, it's because blood represents life. That's why murder is so heinous. Think about Cain and Abel, right? Cain slays his brother. And what does God say? He says, your brother's blood cried out to me. The life that was taken, represented by the blood, cried out. It's when, if you notice in the beginning of Genesis, God only gives people plants to eat. They were a vegetarian society, right? Meat, in that case, was not maybe murder, but close to it. But later on, even after the fall and even after the flood, when God says to Noah and his family that he's going to give animals to eat, he says, do not eat them with the blood still in them because the blood represents life. In fact, even if you accidentally killed somebody, God made provision for that in something in the Old Testament called cities of refuge. And so Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua all note these. If you accidentally killed somebody, their family could have avenged that death. So you had to flee to one of the six cities called a city of refuge. And you had to plead your case to the elders, and if they let you in, you could live there in safety. So even when it was accidental, the, the point of the blood was so important that it had to be taken seriously. So that's the positive side. Blood represents life. The negative side is that the, the 
sacrifices of blood show us a bigger problem. They actually show us two problems. One, they show us that our sin is a bigger deal than we want to make it out to be. But secondly, they show us that God is holier than we often make him out to be. So God can't just say, yeah, Jason, I know you really, really screwed up, but I'm just going to forgive it because he's holier and my sin is a bigger problem than I see it to be. So think about Adam and Eve in the garden, right? They disobey, they eat from the tree, and God confronts them. And what's one of the first things he does for them? He needs to make a covering. And what does he make it of? They made a poor attempt with fig leaves, right? He has to, in front of them, kill the animals that they had been in harmony with in the garden. They had to see the blood in order to receive the covering. They had to watch something die for them. And then as we get through the rest of the law that Moses writes into Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and then the retelling in Deuteronomy, we see that there's all these feasts and offerings that include sacrifice. And the, and the greatest of these was the Day of Atonement, what we call Yom Kippur, where, where there was these animals that would be slaughtered. And they served as a gruesome reminder to the people of the price of their sin. Each year at Passover, tens of thousands and sometimes hundreds of thousands of lambs were slaughtered. In fact, the second temple that was built in Jerusalem had a trough that carried the blood away because there was so much. The temple would have looked more like a butcher shop than a place of worship. And that was by design. God wanted to make it perfectly clear to his people what their sin entails. The other part that we need to consider is that forgiveness is impossible without some form of sacrifice or suffering. Now, if you've forgiven somebody who, who has hurt you deeply, you know this to be true. To Forgive them means you have to sacrifice something. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor, and he was a theologian in the early 20th century in Germany whose life was taken by the Nazi regime. And here's what he said about forgiveness. He said, forgiveness is a form of suffering. When I forgive, I have not only suffered the offense, but also released or suppressed the rightful claims of strict retributive justice in favor of costly, redemptive justice. I give up the right to see that person pay for what they've done, is what he's saying when we forgive. There's a sacrifice that comes along with it. So let's look at this passage now, and let's look at the first P, which is promise. Jesus' sacrifice secures for us a better Promise, And we see this in verses 15 and following up to 22. Look at the first word of 15. It says, therefore. We know that when it says that, we need to look back at what was just said. The author is tying back to what Dave spoke about last week. And that is, Jesus is a greater high priest who enters through a more perfect tent, not with the blood 
of bulls and goats, but by his own blood. And so now he's going to build on what this means for us. Why does he do it? Look what the rest of that verse says. It says, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from their transgressions committed under the first covenant. So he says the reason that Jesus did what he did, the reason he's the better high priest, the reason he enters a better temple, the reason that his blood is better is because he's making a promise. He's making a promise of an inheritance. And that's what exactly follows in verses 16 and 17. He says, now here's kind of a play on words. He says, a will, which is the same word in the Greek for covenant. He says, a will only goes into effect after someone dies. It's like the little kid who goes to his grandmother and he says, Grandmom, can you croak like a frog? And she says, why on earth would you ask that question? And he said, well, Mommy and Daddy said, if you croak, we can go to Disney World. <laughs> right? Different definition of croak than what Mom and Dad had. But they knew that the money that was coming from Grandma didn't come until Grandma was gone. Right? And so the author says, look, in order for a will to be established, there needs to be a death. And he says, in this case, that death is Jesus himself. But it's not just a will as in the common way we think of it today that's established by death. The covenants of the Old Testament by and large were also established by some form of death. And he says it right here. Notice what he says. He says, he talks about uh, Moses, and he says, therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. He's going back to Exodus chapter 24, to when Moses literally took a bowl of blood, put a branch with a hyssop in, bloodied it up, and then he started sprinkling the people with it. He says, not even the old covenant, not even the old will, not even the Old Testament came about unless there was blood. And that's not the only time, of course. There's other sacrifices. We know that when Abraham uh, was given a covenant by God in Genesis chapter 15, right? He puts him into a deep sleep, and on both sides, there's these animals that have been ripped to shreds, and God walks through them. And that was because in those times, people understood that what God was saying is, if I don't fulfill this promise, let me be torn apart. The difference with this new covenant, though, is not that Jesus is going to be killed if he doesn't keep it. Jesus sacrifices himself in order to keep it. If you look at the words of verse 24 here, it says this, it says 9, I think it's 924. No, I'm sorry, 920. This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. He's going back again to Exodus 24 and he's saying, this is what Moses said. Now, if you listen to those words, they should sound familiar to you because Jesus says something almost identical 
at the end of his earthly life before he goes to the cross. And that can be found in Matthew 26, 28. But he doesn't say this is the, the blood of the covenant. What does he say? This is my blood of the covenant. He personalizes it. It's not the blood of an animal that's given. It's his own. And it's not only by the blood that the promise of inheritance can be secured because there is no inheritance without forgiveness of sins. And look what the author says here, verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So even under the old covenant, it was understood that blood would need to be shed in order for the promise to be fulfilled. See, but here's the difference. The old covenant had some wonderful promises associated to it, but those promises were generally either conditional and never became permanent, like Israel received land, but then they left the land, and then they came back, and then another country came in and took over. And now even today, the Israel that exists today is not the same borders that God had promised his people back at the beginning of the Bible. But the covenant that Jesus is going to establish is going to be a permanent one. And that's why Peter in 1 Peter says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Jesus' sacrifice is better because it allows him to offer a better promise based on a better covenant. The promise is better because the inheritance itself is better. What is the inheritance? It's not a place, and it's not a thing. The inheritance is Jesus himself. The forgiveness we receive allows us to be in relationship with him forever. So his sacrifice gives us a better promise. Secondly, it opens up a better place. Look as the story continues now with verse 23. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Last week, excuse me, Dave Allum had said what was inside the tabernacle, right? He went into detail about it, how there was an outside entrance and then another inside door and then the holy of holies, right? And yet think about it. God's presence dwelt with his people and yet they couldn't fully access it. There was only one person who on one day of the year could enter the Holy of Holies. And that was after sacrifices were made and he himself was cleansed for his sins. Right? It's sort of like my neighbor. I have a neighbor a couple of streets away who I walk by his place every now and then and he's got this huge fence and all the fence are all these messages basically saying keep out. One of them says, do you believe in eternity? Jump the fence and find out. 
right? He, no, you have no access to this place. And that's exactly what the people of the Old Testament were experiencing. God's presence dwelt physically in, in the Holy of Holies. And yet they couldn't access that. The priest and the high priest could, in part, and just the high priest for the Holy of Holies once a year. And so here, the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, remember, those things were just a copy. They're not even the real thing. So what needs to happen in order for the real thing to become accessible? Jesus isn't going to enter an earthly temple and cleanse it with his blood. Rather, he enters heaven itself. He doesn't go for the copy, he goes for the original. Now, sometime I would encourage you, maybe write it down, go to Revelation chapter 4. And you'll see in there what the heavenly throne room is like. And if you compare it and contrast it to the earthly tabernacle, you see that with the earthly tabernacle, the door was closed. But the heavenly one is open. You'll see with the earthly tabernacle that there was a mercy seat that functioned as God's throne in the tabernacle. But in heaven, there's an actual throne that he himself sits on. You'll see that on the earthly tabernacle, there's statues of gold of the cherubim. But in the heavenly throne room, the actual creatures themselves are at the throne. So why does Jesus enter heaven? Look what it says in verse 24, and this is crucial. For Jesus has entered not into holy places made with hands, which again, he says, are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on your behalf. Jesus enters with a specific purpose. He enters on our behalf. He says for Jim, and he says for Al, and he says for Penny, and he says for all of us, Father, I've paid the price for them. I want them to be where I am with you. He opens a better place for us because he does it with his own blood. Think about this for just a moment with me, because it's really powerful. If God were to reject you as a follower of Jesus Christ, the only way that could happen is if he rejected Jesus himself. He would have to spurn Christ's sacrifice on our behalf to say no to us if we believed in that finished work and placed our faith in Jesus Christ and what he did. In John's gospel account, he records that just before Jesus died, he uttered three words in our English language. It is finished. The debt was paid. As soon as he dies, what happens? Call it out. What happens? What happens in the temple? This helps me know if you're awake. The veil is torn in two. And how does that happen? Top to bottom, right? It's not some guy with a big pair of scissors going up. It's God separating it to say, listen, 
access for you is now available. And it came through what my son, who I sent, did on your behalf. Jesus' sacrifice is better because it grants us permanent access into God's presence. In fact, the very first verse of next week's message deals with that, and I just want to read it. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. See, it doesn't say you can, you can sneak your way in. It says you can have confidence, not because of who you are or what you've done, but because of who Jesus is and what he's done. So there's a promise, there's a place. Thirdly, Jesus' sacrifice is perfect. Verse 23 talked about the need for a better sacrifice. Now, verses 25 and following are going to show us there was one. When the high priest entered the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement, he did so not with his own blood, right? If you look at Leviticus chapter 16, it goes through the entire Day of Atonement has its own chapter in Leviticus 16. And it goes through all the details of what need to be done by the high priest that day. He enters, he has to make a sacrifice for himself and for his family and his house because he's a sinner. And then there have to be sacrifices for the people as a reminder of their sinfulness and that God had to do something to deal with it. The mercy seat itself would be sprinkled with blood, but it would be the blood of animals. And those animals had no choice, right? It wasn't like Billy the goat went in and said, you know, Jason really needs help today. Uh, you know, I've lived a good life. I'm going to give myself up for him, right? No, he's carried in, has no idea what's about to happen, and then out comes a knife. Jesus knows everything that is going to happen, and he still goes. Because only his blood is given both willingly and without sin. Only his blood. The blood of one person, God and man. And the author of Hebrews here is now going to tell us why that's important and what that means. Look at verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest entered the holy place every year with blood not of his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He says, listen, guys. This is what makes it the best. It's not having to be done year after year by different people because they die out. It's done once for all by one man, Jesus Christ. And this is now going to be something, this once for all idea that he's going to revisit time and time again. And he's begging the question. He's asking his original and audience, in essence, Listen, if Jesus appeared one time, once for all, at the climax of history, why would you want to go back to the old covenant? Why would you want the copy when you could have the genuine article? 
But he's also connecting another idea, and look at the rest of the chapter there. He says, and just as it is appointed for man once to die, and after this comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. The author is saying, listen, remember, a time is coming when this earthly life will be over, and you will give an account Right? It's sort of like a storm warning, right? When you see on the TV, the hurricane's coming. God is saying, look, there is a time coming when you'll face judgment. He's warning us ahead of time. Now, a few years ago, this was after um, Hurricane Katrina, my wife and I had the chance to be down in New Orleans. And in a large section of the city, you can still see, I believe it's still visible to this day, maybe not as much, but houses had these markings on them. And it was from the EMTs and other emergency personnel who went down after the storm. And it would mark that they cleared the house, and it would mark for those coming after them if there were bodies inside. It was one of the most gruesome things, one of the most eerie things I've ever experienced in this life. But for some of those folks, they might have had valid reasons that they were not able to get out. But we know time and time again when these storms come, for a lot of folks, they're like, ah, I've made it through all the others. It's no big deal. And yet for a lot of them that day, it was a big deal. And just like there were warnings that were given to them before the storm made landfall, God through his word is giving a warning to us and we need to heed it that there's a day coming where we will give an account. Now, in his letter to the church in Rome, the Apostle Paul says this, and this is why, you know, we can't just dwell on the bad news, but we need to hear it. But listen to the good news. In chapter 5 of Romans, here's what Paul says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus' sacrifice is better because he only had to do it one time and he did so willingly, even though it was for his enemies. So we've seen the promise, we've seen the place, we've seen the... Um, the perfectness of his blood. Now let's look at the power. And this is really the remainder of this in chapter 10. So it says, For this, since the law has been but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never be by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year we make perfect those who draw near. The author is going to lay it out and he's going to give us three indications why the Old Testament sacrifices can accomplish making us perfect, but why Jesus can. If you look in verse 1, the first reason the Old Testament sacrifices couldn't work is that they were just a shadow. The Old Covenant sacrificial system wasn't the substance. They were a picture to point ahead to a time that was coming when a sacrifice that was the substance would be made. Secondly, verse 2. If the, he asks a question, if the sacrifices were sufficient, would they have had to continue? The author appeals logically here. 
He says, if the sacrifices really were meant to make us perfect, if, if trying to keep the Old Testament law worked, then why are they still in place even to the day he's writing at? Wouldn't they no longer be necessary? But they continue because they were never intended to make us perfect. They were temporary until the permanent appeared. And then verses 3 and 4. The blood of bull and goats was never meant to take sin away. Rather, look what it says. Chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. It says, but these sacrifices are a what? A reminder. They weren't there to take away sin. They were there to remind the people of it, to show them their sinfulness and their need for God. They were a regular reminder of the seriousness of their sin. And the fact that their only hope was that God would intervene. This is why legalism and a works orientation can never make us perfect. Because we can't make up for the sin we've already committed, let alone what we'll commit in the future. We can't make up for what's already been committed. And we can't cleanse our conscience on our own. But then he pivots, and he gives us three reasons why Jesus' sacrifice is, in fact, sufficient in verses 5 to 10. First, Jesus offers himself. He goes back to this thought, but here, look what he does. He quotes Psalm 40, and he says in verse 5, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, it doesn't say that the psalmist prophesied. It doesn't say that Jesus said this is what the psalmist said. It says Jesus himself said he's connecting back that a thousand years before Jesus became man, he wrote these very words to point ahead. That Old Testament, that Old Covenant points ahead to the one who would fully and finally deal with the problem of sin. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. But wait a minute, didn't God ordain those things? Doesn't the Old Testament specifically tell us he told people to do this? Yes. But he didn't tell them to do it because it would make them perfect. He did it as a placeholder until the time had become full when Jesus would arrive. And so verse 10 uh, captures it. And this is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It says, and by that will, he's going back now. He's going back and saying Jesus came willingly and he came in a body because that's what the Old Testament passage says, right? But you have prepared a body for me. Jesus was coming as a person to be able to shed his own blood. And the author says, and by that will, by Christ's willingness, by the Father's divine plan, we have been sanctified through the offering of the blood of Jesus Christ once for all. That's written in a way in the Greek that says, even though you haven't fully experienced this yet, it's a done deal. You are sanctified. Jesus has made you perfect. 
So Jesus offers himself. Secondly, verses 11 to 14, he sat down. Now, if you've ever seen a picture of the tabernacle or a diagram of what's inside of it, or if you listened to Dave last week, you will notice one thing that's never mentioned, never pictured, is a chair. And that's because for the priests, their work never ended. They never sat down because they had to continually make sacrifices over and over again. Sacrifices that the author of Hebrews says never takes away sin. But Jesus, it says, sat down. It's first an indicator that his work is complete. But secondly, look where he's seated. He's seated at the right hand of God. He's seated in a place of power and of authority. He has the ability to say, my sacrifice was in fact enough for Jason. My sacrifice was enough for Desmond. My sacrifice was enough for Judy. He has that authority. He's completed the work, and he sits at the right hand of the Father. Thirdly, in verse 17, it says that the Holy Spirit bears witness. He bears witness that what Christ did was the full and final act. And he quotes here now Jeremiah 31, and he says, this is the covenant that I will make with them. So he's looking forward at that time when Jeremiah is writing. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. In Galatians 3, 24, Paul captures what the author of Hebrews is doing here. Because here's what he says. He says that the law, the Old Testament covenant, was a guardian. It was put in place until Jesus himself would come, and then we could be fully justified by faith. Jesus' sacrifice is better because it doesn't just point to our need for a Savior, but it shows us that one has, in fact, been provided. And lastly, Jesus' sacrifice changes our position. Verses 14 to 18, looking back at those again, now here's where it talks about the the Spirit testifying. These verses show us a change has taken place because of the sacrifice. The old covenant showed us that our guilt was not removed. The new covenant shows us that, in fact, it is. It offers us both forgiveness, and it tells us that God is going to write his law on our hearts and on our minds. The Old Testament shows us we need a Savior, that Old Covenant. The New Covenant shows us we have one. And that's what Paul says in Colossians. He reminds us that it's through the work of Jesus Christ that we're transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son. Jesus' sacrifice is better because it changes our position from being enemies who are separated from him because of our sin to children who are in relationship with the Father because of what Jesus has done for us. Now, here's the conclusion. I'm actually going to throw in a sixth P for, your, for our benefit. Hopefully, it will be for our benefit. And that P is for the word plea. It's easy to think of Jesus just as the lamb who's meek and lowly, 
but this passage, just like the song we sang earlier today, and just like Sam, who's up front, reminds us that Jesus is not only a lamb, he's a lion. And here's how it does. Look at verses, uh, chapter 9, verse 28, and then 10, 13. In 9.28, it says, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Chapter 10, verse 13 says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, verse 13, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. The author of Hebrews looks ahead for us, and he gives two descriptions. One for a group of people who are eagerly waiting for Jesus to return. The other for his enemies. And those descriptions could not be any more different. For the ones who embrace Christ and are eagerly waiting for his return, he will come, it says, to save them and bring them into the presence of God. For his enemies, including those who reject him, he will come to squash them, to make them, in the words of Psalm 110, which is what the author of Hebrews is alluding to here, a footstool. So think about that image when you put your feet up tonight. The enemies of Christ who refuse to repent, who refuse to acknowledge who he is. He is coming to make them a footstool. Please understand and be clear. And I say this with love and with concern and with compassion as a fellow sinner. The Bible is absolutely clear. One day, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus is the Lord to the glory of God. Some will do this with joy. Some will do this with sorrow and grief, but all will do it. As this message concludes, I hope what you're hearing is not my voice, but the voice of the Savior who came willingly to give his blood for you that you'll listen to that voice, the voice of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and that you'll throw yourself upon his mercy and his grace so that when the day comes that he returns, you are eagerly awaiting it with joy. And here's why you should do this, and this is the last thing I'm going to say. Normally, and almost most of us, I would presume, have been through this. When someone passes away and you receive an inheritance of some sort, whether that's a financial inheritance or whether that's maybe some things that were significant that that person left to you as one of their loved ones, those can be great and they can be a wonderful way to remember. But I can confidently say we would much rather be able to enjoy it with that person. The difference with the inheritance with Jesus Christ is that's exactly what we get to do. Yes, he did die, 
but he rose again in the inheritance that he promises to us is an inheritance we get to enjoy with him because that inheritance is him. Let's pray. Father, it was a heavy message, and I felt the weight of it, but I know you are good. And I again thank you that through the foolishness of preaching, God, you accomplish your purposes. Work in our hearts to reveal, God, where maybe we're not eagerly awaiting you. Maybe, Father, that um, there are things of this world that have captured our, our attention, our heart, our minds. Help us to see them, God, that we might repent and turn to the one who you prepared a body for, who gave that body as a sacrifice for us. God, we give you thanks that you'd be willing to do that, that you would pursue your enemies, that you would count us precious in your heart and in your eyes to come after us by sending your son. May we not reject the inheritance, but God, may we have delight and may we eagerly wait for Jesus' return. May we see him for who he is, submit to him for who he is, Love him for who he is, I pray, in the name of the one who loves us. Amen.